I almost feel like I don't need to say anything this morning because it's all been said in worship. It's all we've heard of God's goodness, and something I said in church a couple of weeks ago was something that I really think God is doing amongst us as a church is moving us from the shallow end of our faith into the deep end. And for some of us, that's really scary, right? Because the shallow end is predictable. My feet can touch the bottom. Uh, Some of us love the deep end and the adventure and you guys are thriving in this new season. But some of us, you know, your ears hit the water, you go under, you've got to figure out, you know, what muscles do and don't work. Uh, But the point is, I believe God is calling us as a church to do that. And if we just look at what's been happening, guys, in our church for the last couple of weeks, think about what we heard about HBC last week. I mean, please don't forget about that, all right? And what you've heard about this morning, this is the reality of God working in and through our church. If we hear about restore and what God is doing, increasing our ability to help those who are in need amongst us as a church. Think about what God has been doing. For those of you, I just know God is working so deeply in your lives and in your life groups as you've gone through this book of Colossians. And we are just seeing a deeper joy and a deeper faith emerging. And if you are sitting here this morning and you still feel like you're on the shallow end, so they say, come along, come along and, and take this step of faith into the deep, deep end. Come into the space where maybe you're less reliant on you and what you know about yourself and what you know about your abilities and let's trust God for a far deeper work. And uh, we're gonna continue doing that as we go through this book of Colossians. If you have your Bible, Colossians chapter three is where we are. And just by way of introducing the topic for this morning as you're turning there, a couple of nights ago, Bianca and I were up talking about our kids and um, Levi's nine. And I said to Bianca, do you know what? In double his lifetime, so in other words, in nine years time, he's gonna be 18. And we're like, no, no. I mean, 18, that's where he's thinking about studying. And that's where he's, you know, girls and thinking about leaving the home. And we just freaked out about our little boys becoming these grown men, right? Exciting, but scary at the same time. And, And as we think, and as I think about our boys becoming young men who are gonna study and eventually become hopefully responsible, autonomous men in this world, I got you thinking about what would I love to impart into their lives? So that when they leave our home and when maybe they even leave our city and go to another place, What am I wanting to ensure is so deeply rooted in them that it sticks with them? So, you know, some of these honestly are very selfish, but I want to be able to fish with my boys for the rest of my life, to be honest. So I I want to impart a love for fishing, right? So that uh, we're always going to remember, you know, holidays with dad and we're going to fish together. Also want to impart into my boys a love for, I just don't want them to be cavemen in the kitchen. Really, I want them to be able to kind of offer their future sweetheart, you know, I can actually do something here, actually cook something really wonderful for you. Also want my boys to love and appreciate music and not just listening to music. I'd love them to get to the point where they are engaging creatively and in, in writing music and, and involved in some form of performance or involved in the church. I want my boys to love reading. Uh, and, and, and to be honest, they're already there. Uh, they're already devouring books at their young age. I don't know if you're seeing a pattern here. Basically, I want my boys to be me, all right? Which is very selfish. Now, that's kind of cool. And some of those things may or may not happen. Uh, not by lack of trying on my side. 
But there are some things that are way more important that I hope to, and we hope to impart in our boys. We want them to be, by the time they're 18, young men of character, right? We want them to have a strong character that is robust, that is resilient, that can handle some of the difficulties of life. I want them to be able to live in grace and live in love. I want them to be able to treat their peers well, treat their friends well. I want them to be able to treat women well, older, younger, and, and, and the women that they sweet on. Uh, we want them to be respectful in society. We want them to be courageous in this world as well. But probably at the top, and I think it actually informs everything else, we want them to have a resilient, intelligible faith that they are able to go into this world where there's so much opposition, whether it's moral opposition or idea opposition or just the difficulty of life and that the love and the grace that they are living in, they are really walking in Christ. And if we can somehow pass that on to them as, long as, as well as some of those others, I think we've done a fantastic job. But the question is, where does that start? Does it happen here on Sundays? Well, Sundays plays a role, but we realize if these are the kinds of values we want to see present in our kids as they leave home, that starts now in our families. So the title of today's message is Faith Factories, because that's what families are. This is where we nurture and develop the kinds of things we want to see in our children as they go on. So now, whether we're talking about kind of food, music, and fishing, or whether we're talking about character and grace and faith, what are the kinds of ingredients that need to be present in us as a family in order to increase the chances of them owning these qualities as they leave home as independent, autonomous young men? Well, the first one is we need to model these things. So our boys are going to hear what we say, but they're going to be watching us. So our boys are going to be watching how Bianca and I speak to one another, whether it's in times of chill or times of rough times or, or times of great joy. They're going to be watching how I treat other people. They're going to be watching my character in difficult situations. They're going to be watching how I divide up my time. And of course, they're going to be watching how I take faith from this theory on a Sunday into reality on a Monday. Doesn't matter what I say. We need to model these things, right? The second thing is, they're going to notice what I'm passionate about. So if it's like, oh, Steve, it's your turn to cook. Oh, gosh. They're like, oh, you know, that's, cooking's not an important thing. But if you know anything about me, I love cooking. So they're going to see this passion. And they are going to be impassioned by my passion. If I get solely bummed out every time I need to do something with, you know, play the guitar, I'm not going to pass that on. But if they see my passion in music, there's a more chance that I can pass that on. And when it comes to faith, if I've got this dead clinical faith, there's no way, well, it's not no way because God can intervene, right? But it just makes it so much harder to pass that real faith on if it's a passionless faith. And the third thing is, if I want to pass these valuable, these valuable values on, I need to involve them in these, in these activities. I mean, if, if every time I do something that's music and I'm always abandoning them and leaving them at home, they're probably going to grow to hate it. 
Johnny Clegg recently passed away and saw an interview with his son, Jesse Clegg. And, and even though his father was on the road all the time, uh, Jesse Clegg said, you know, my father just involved me in his music. And for that reason, I grew a love and a passion for music. The other day we decided as a family, we're gonna make pizzas from scratch. I'm talking about make the dough the day before so it can you know, rise and ferment and do all that wonderful stuff and got my kids the biggest, sharpest blades and we're gonna learn to chop the garlic ourselves and we're gonna make the sauce from scratch. I mean, the whole deal and by involving them, by hopefully showing some passion, I mean, they loved it. And I can guarantee you something was deposited there. And then how do I involve them in my faith? How am I living this uncompartmentalized faith that is very real in how I live this out? And these are the kinds of things that are gonna help us pass our faith on. And God has designed families to be the primary space where faith is lived out and passed on. Craig spoke last week about the fact that um, our, our kids' ministry, which is incredible and amazing, the team are amazing, that's a secondary voice in their lives. The primary voice in their lives ought to be our families. And so as we come to this part of the book of Colossians, that's gonna be the challenge this morning. And it really is a massive challenge. I read a book recently called Sticky Faith. Uh, it was published in about 2012. And, and early on in the book, they looked at some statistics and they looked at a number of about three or four uh, research-based exercises and they really came to a conclusion that for Christian kids, and, and you know, that's not all kids, but Christian kids grew up in Christian family, going through kind of kids ministry, going through youth ministry, coming into a place where they're now eventually starting to study and so forth, that 40 to 50% of those kids, by the time they're leaving home, leave the faith. We're talking about Christian children in Christian families. Now, that's a scary stat, but that's just a stat. Let's get a bit real about this. Imagine we lined up every child in Riverside or young person in Riverside under the age of 22. We just line them up. There's about 150 of them in Riverside, right from the babies to our young adults. And then kind of break time sports games, you know, one, two, you're a one, you're a two, you're a one, you're a two. You've got all the ones on one side and all the twos on the other side. And I said, these people will hold the faith. These people will not. Doesn't that freak you out? Right? And Paul knows that. And God knows that. And therefore the challenge to us who are still sitting here is what are we going to do to ensure that we go up against that statistic? Now, we as a staff want to do that. We as a leadership want to do that. Our serving teams are working towards that end. But to be honest, every single one of you need to be on board with this so that our families become faith factories for what matters most. Craig started us on these verses that we're going to be speaking about this morning and he wanted to leave us with one big important idea this idea of Christ-centered families. And what I'm gonna be doing, I'm gonna be looking at the same verses, but going into a lot more detail here. But if you want to know what it means to have a Christ-centered family, you'd be making a big mistake if you open up your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter three, the verses we're gonna be looking at today, and start there. 
Because if you just say, hey, I want to have a Christ-centered family, I'm going to start reading in Colossians chapter 3, and um, you are really running the risk of arriving at some, clue, some conclusions that you shouldn't and interpreting those verses in a way that you shouldn't be. Because if you want to have a faith-centered, Christ-centered family, you need to start where Paul starts, which is chapter 1. Because Paul is assuming that by the time he gets to chapter 3, where he's talking about families, he's assuming you're on board with everything else he's spoken about. So he's assuming, chapter 1, that Christ is first in your life, above all things. He's assuming, number two, that your identity is being shaped by your identity in Christ. That your identity is shaped by your sin being covered by His death and His life being given to you and you are now living out of that space. Number three, he is assuming that you've already made the decision to submit all of your practical life under the Lordship of Christ. Whether you're talking about what you eat, what you drink, what you celebrate, uh, how we do family, how we do church, that you have made this value decision because of point one, because of point two, point three. That affects everything, even the most practical parts of my life. Then he's assuming point four, that you are an active part of a faith community, that you're involved, that you are showing up, that you are serving, that you are loving, that you are integrated to the point that even if you hit some relational difficulties, there are some gospel guidelines as to how to live out these relational difficulties. And then Paul gets to family. See, if you ignore all the first part and you try and jump into family parts, it's just weird. It's like legalistic. It's outside in. Whereas if we are living, point one to four, suddenly by the time we get to families, there's already a robust commitment to Christ and a resilient faith within us. So some of you here though, and you might have switched off already, <laughs> some of you here might be single. Some of you here might be going through a tough patch in a marriage or, or family. Some of you, maybe your kids have left the home and you're like, oh, sermon on family, that's not for me. And I want to say anything but that. You see, some of you, some of you who are single, and even if you're old and single, hey, you might still get married, Right? So there's something for you to start shaping you. But for everybody else who's sitting here this morning, you either have kids or are gonna have kids or you've got friends who are married, or you've got people in your family who are married or just the general principles of being involved in a faith community, there is something for absolutely every single person to take away this morning. So as Paul is writing, he's writing to a, a, a Roman church with a few kind of Jews that had been there from the diaspora. He, he's got a, Rome, a typical Roman family in mind as he writes to them. And he's trying to address the day-to-day -day life of most of these Christians in Colossae 2,000 years ago. Uh, what we're going to be doing just to help us get the most out of today's text is, um, for those of you who don't know, Paul wrote another book to another church in the city of Ephesus, also a Roman Greek city, and uh, he writes to them and he wrote very similarly to what he's writing to Colossians. There's almost like a perfect parallel between Ephesians and Colossians. And so we're gonna just take Colossians and we're gonna read the same verses in Ephesians and come away even more enriched. Okay, so feel free to stick your finger in Ephesians chapter five. Otherwise, they'll just be on the screen behind me. So let's tuck in Colossians chapter three, verses 18. Wives, submit to your husbands 
as is fitting to the Lord. <laughs> okay. 2019, Stephen, we've moved past that, right? You don't see people tweeting that, all right? Uh, you don't see Dr. Phil teaching that. You don't see Oprah celebrating what we have just read. And I think one of the reasons why we find that idea so appalling is because there has been such abuse of authority in all structures. There's been an abuse of authority in marriage, an abuse of authority in family, an abuse of authority often in church, an abuse of authority in government and all other business. And because of toxic authority, this word submit strikes us as completely alien. And so the challenge is to kind of take some of our assumptions and even some of our painful experiences and try and understand authority through the lens of the Scriptures. Because God sees authority as a good thing. God gives authority. God designates authority. God gives authority into a country, a land. God gives authority to a church and leaders in a church. And God gives authority into a family. The question is, what does that authority look like? You see, authority isn't bad. Abuse of authority is bad. So now, observation 101, who is this verse speaking to? Wives. This verse doesn't say, husbands, please ensure your wives submit to you. You're allowed to listen in, right? But it's not writing to you. Because here's what we hopefully have figured out somewhere along the line, being human beings. Doesn't matter who you are. You can't change anybody else. I know you tried. I know I've tried. You can't change your wife. You can't change your husband. You can't change your kids. Who is the only person that you can change? Yourself. So Paul is gonna write to wives. Then he's gonna say, wives, take a chill pull. Husbands, now I'm speaking to you. Then he's going to speak to children and then he's going to speak to parents. And in each of those circumstances is to say, this isn't for her, this isn't for him, this is for me. Reading a book called Sacred Marriage by a guy called Gary Thomas. This is what he says about this. He says, the times that I am happiest and most fulfilled in my marriage are the times when I am intent on drawing meaning and fulfillment from becoming a better husband rather than from demanding a better wife. He says, I don't know why it works, but for some reason, when I'm discontent, it's because I'm trying to change my wife. But when I focus attention on myself, somehow I'm happier. Somehow I'm more content. So if you want to affect your relationship, stop trying to change the other person and work on yourself, right? And so as Paul is writing to this family, he's saying, wives, in the context of the gospel, submission is something to be celebrated. We even see the son submitting to the father in the Godhead. It's not a point of weakness. Uh, and, and as we understand authority and the role of authority, suddenly this picture, this beautiful picture emerges that is so foreign to what we often hear in our minds when we see a verse such as this. Now what Colossians assumes by what we've read thus far Ephesians actually states very clearly. So if you look at the similar passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 5.21 says this, Submit to one another out of reference to Christ. 
And then verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. In other words, Paul is assuming there's this mutual submission to one another because of our mutual submission to Christ. So I as a man and my wife as a woman are already a priori committed to submitting to Jesus. And because of how I understand Jesus has saved me and is transforming me, I now live that out horizontally in this institution called marriage, whereby I am going to have to lay down certain things for the sake of her, and she is going to have to lay down certain things for the sake of me, mutually because of Christ. And so the context is this Christ-centered household where we are all submitted to Him. The picture is not a picture of a bully and a doormat. Submission in the scripture is never about that. It's never about, well, the wife has no voice. It's never about that she cannot express herself. It's never about the fact that she cannot thrive in work. It's never about the fact that she cannot be a strong, intelligent, contributing woman. It's never about the fact that she doesn't get to be involved in decision-making. Anything but that if we understand authority correctly. In fact, if you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, the, the ladies that are held up as images of godliness are industrial, strong, influential, informed, intelligent. And the biblical portraits of marriage and family should celebrate that. And we need to figure out how my submission to Christ shapes how I do fathering and husbanding. And in turn, my wife is gonna be doing the same thing. So the portraits here, as we're gonna look at the next verse, is of a submitted but loving leadership. And then out of honor of Christ, a trusting following under this banner of a mutual submission. So let's go to the next verse. Because as we put these pieces together, it starts to make sense. Verse 19, husbands, now he's writing to husbands. So wives, we get to listen in. But husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, verse 19 and verse 18, out of those two verses we've just read, which strikes you as the weirdest in 2019? The previous one, right? This one is like, yeah, yeah of course men need to love their wives. I mean, that's a good thing. That verse, you know, the previous one, like, no, that's, that's weird. It's language we can't wrap our minds around. When Paul wrote this, these verses to this church 2,000 years ago, it is the opposite. They would have found the husbands, uh, sorry, wives submit to your husbands as normal. In fact, the kind of doormat bully scenario was played out a lot more often in the Roman ways. It is all about power and dominance. And by God teaching the things that He is doing, He's raising the value of woman rather than the opposite. But it is this verse, husbands, love your wives. They would have been offended by that. Because I think Roman culture and, and South African male culture, probably very similar, right? Now, out of everything Paul could have said, a million things he could have said to husbands, he chose to say, and do not be harsh with them. As a physically stronger gender on average and the testosterone running through our veins, on average, we are gonna fall into the habits of harshness and dominance instead of a gospel-shaped loving leadership. So Paul says, no, your role is to love. What does love look like? Well, in a second, we're gonna see, we look at the cross, we look at Jesus. 
and your role is do not be harsh. So what is the opposite? If he says, do not be harsh, let's throw out some words. Just shout them out. What's the opposite of harshness? Kind. So be kind, husbands. Gentle. Use your strength to be gentle, right? What else? Caring. Care, husbands, for your wife. Are you getting the picture here? Husbands, don't use your strength to dominate and be harsh. Use your strength to be kind, compassionate. And do you know what? Just go back and read a few verses. You see those words coming out. Be kind, compassionate, gentle with one another, forgiving. That's for all of us. And Paul's reminding us as husbands that that is what we ought to be doing. Ephesians chapter five, verses 25. Husbands, love your wives. There we go. Just finishes it differently. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So do you want to know what leadership looks like? I look at the gospel. I look at the king of kings who washed my stinky feet and who died on my behalf so that I could thrive and live. In other words, what headship and, and leadership looks like is laying down my life for the sake of you. John Stott, famous evangelical pastor, great theologian, just a great man, died a couple of years ago. Um, he said this about this. If headship means power in any sense, then it is power to care, not to crush. Power to serve, not to dominate. Power to facilitate self-fulfillment, not to frustrate or destroy it. And in all this, the standard of the husband's love is to be the cross of Christ on which he surrendered himself even to death in his selfless love for his bride. This is difficult in a culture that worships power. For those of you who are in a corporate context, for those of you for whom power is a domineering, crushing value that is somehow respected. But to reshape our understanding of what leadership and love look like by the gospel is gonna require me dying to that part of me so that I can greater be filled with the grace of Christ that I've received by Him and therefore now love my wife and my children in a different way. And then when I lovingly lead from that place, I've demonstrated my desire to sacrifice my needs for the sake of others. How convinced will my family be that, man, I have their best heart in my heart? Are you getting that? So now he's spoken to wives, he's spoken to fathers, uh, wives and then husbands, then he gets to kids. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Some of you only started listening now. You're like, where's that verse? Right? <laughs> All right, I'm gonna stick that verse in my fridge. Um, my kids want a tattoo. They, they can tattoo that verse, right, wherever they want. Okay, I'm happy with that. Now, what's interesting, just like I pointed out earlier, when he's writing to wives, he's writing to wives and husbands. Now he's speaking to children. Now, I know I'm putting this point home, but he's therefore assuming children are part of this community. They're not just little people to ignore. We have, and I'll say it again, a wonderful kids' ministry that is not a babysitting service. That those leaders are there to disciple our children into faith. And just the way it works practically here is that most Sundays, they leave our space and go to their space and have a ball learning about Jesus. 
But here, there's a bit of a challenge to us. Paul is assuming that this letter is gonna be read out in a context and that children are gonna be there and that we can actually address children directly. This is not parents. Parents, make sure your children obey. I'm, right. I'm, I'm writing to children. Sometimes we have family services, either because of the holidays or there's a, a special thing we wanna celebrate as a church and we have the kids part of us. And again, some of us really struggle with that because they distract from me being, you know, church, doing church properly. And, and, and maybe sometimes we can be too much like the disciples who wanna keep the children away from Jesus and Jesus challenges that assumption. He says, bring them here. So imagine we saw children the same way Paul does and Jesus does. They're part of our family. And in fact, we give them the dignity. We can actually teach them. We can address them. Right, so, so imagine when they are here, and I know, I mean, our kids are seven and nine, uh, and they still struggle, all right? It's, it's tough, and maybe your kids are, are three years old, five years I know it's not an easy time, but imagine we saw them as part of the family. Imagine instead of seeing, oh, what are we gonna do with them for 20 minutes? Parents, faith factories, now is an opportunity for me to model faith. My children are here. I get to model worship. I get to model attentiveness. I get to speak. Dad, you know what dad's doing now? I get to model journaling. I get to model responding to the word. I get to, dad's got to go now. Why? Because I've got to do such and such and such. You know, this is how I help out in the church. I get to model servanthood. Imagine we saw it in that way. So Paul is addressing children directly and he says, listen, kids, when you obey your parents, short of sin, when you obey your parents, you are actually obeying Jesus. So grow that value in your mind from the youngest of ages. Then spoken to wives, husbands, children. Then he gets to verse 21. He says, fathers, do not embitter your children. And by extension, we could say parents. Do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Ephesians 6.4, very similar. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, which means provoke them to anger. Instead, bring them up in the training and discipline of the Lord. So parents, fathers, I think maybe because we are more prone to parenting in this way, don't embitter your children. Don't provoke them to anger. Now, what Paul, I don't think what Paul is saying, I don't think he's saying, listen, once your kids have had 40 suckers and you take the 41st sucker away from them and they get angry with you, I don't think he's saying, don't do that. Again, the Bible speaks very positively around godly, loving discipline in the way that God disciplines us so we learn how to discipline and raise up our own children. Uh, one of the stories, we were on holiday once and um, one of our sons found my razor blade in the dustbin. So he started kind of moving it over his tongue. By the time we saw him, there's blood coming out of his mouth. But happy as a lock, I mean, really. So, I mean, we dive in there, take the razor blade out of his hand. He starts screaming blue murder, not because of the blood, but because we took the razor blade away from him. So he was angry with us. Paul's not saying, don't, he's not saying, you know, do that. Guys, protect your children, right? But he's saying, listen, when we come out of our emotionally unintelligent spaces, when we are dealing with our own frustrations at work and our own frustrations in relationships or, or, or church or whatever, and here's this person who is younger than me, I've got an authority over them that I may regularly make the mistake of using that space to dominate them. 
and frustrate them and embitter them, provoke them to unnecessary anger. And so again, out of the billion things Paul could have said to parents, just don't do that. Be very mindful of that. I heard one pastor speaking, he's just speaking through his day, what his day kind of looks like. He says, on his way home, and this is something we can all do. On his way home, he just prays, Lord, I've had a tough day. I've had to deal with such and such and this conflict and these parents and, you know, and now I've got to go home and I don't know what my family's gonna be like. I could walk into an angel factory or things could be total chaos. But Lord, I submit myself to you. I submit, I need to find some reserves to step up into this role. I need to step up in grace. I need to step up in love. I need to step up in a gospel-centered, Christ-centered way. So by the time I get in, and maybe like John challenged us, they are not reserves that come naturally to us. This is where Christ's reserves come in. And suddenly I'm able to, in faith, parents as I get home. So, if our tendency is to embitter or to discourage our children, what is the opposite? Parents, what is the do? What is the yes? What is the go ahead? To encourage, to build up, to provide the atmosphere for their flourishing. And Paul actually says in Ephesians, to, to lead, to use my authority, not to discourage, to use my authority to grow and develop them in their character in the Lord. And if I'm gonna exert some energy somewhere, that's what it's gonna be about. So guys, Paul has spoken to us in the last 20, 25 minutes. I don't know where we're at. Uh, he's spoken to wives, spoken to husbands, spoken to children, spoken to parents. We got it, right? Easy, job done, yes? No, because it's hard. <laughs> Doesn't go according to plan. All right, my stuff gets in the way of family stuff and their kids' stuff get in the way of my stuff and, and, and it's not so easy. In fact, some of you sitting here are, are, are not coming from this family of, you know, one mom, one dad, 2.4 children and a dog and a cat. And, and you're like, actually, my story doesn't look like that. Actually, my family's pretty distant. Actually, my marriage is gone. Actually, my kids are walking away from the Lord. Actually, and, and you can finish that in, and, and maybe you're feeling quite discouraged right now. My big encouragement to you would be, wherever you are at, God always has redemption from where you're at. So what does bringing in loving leadership into your situation look like? What does bringing in Christ-like grace, Christ-like authority, I use my authority to build and not to break, what does self-sacrifice look like? What does not frustrating my family look like? What does building up my wife and helping her flourish look like? Speaking from my perspective, in your situation, and I'm not saying those answers are gonna come easily, but I think every single one of these principles still apply. Some of you are single, and I, I wanna suggest to you that as you're thinking about getting married, these are the kinds of things you ought to be looking for in your partner. Are you seeing someone, whether you're looking, you know, you're looking for a husband or a wife, are you looking for someone who is submitted to Christ? Someone who is demonstrating, man, I, I am under Jesus and I'm trying to live out the reality of Jesus in every single part of my life, including dating, including marriage and family in the future. Because if you're finding someone who's not submitted to Jesus, chances are you're not gonna see that in your marriage. This is a reality check. 
And if you are single and you're looking for that kind of a person, my question is to you, are you becoming this kind of a person? Are you focusing your energies on who you are and your character and taking some of these to heart and reshaping how you understand authority, submission, grace and love, self-sacrifice, humility, compassion and all these wonderful things we've spoken about because that is the kind of environment when nurtured that it becomes a faith factory. Right? I'm gonna call the band up. We're gonna come to the table. We're gonna remember that at the center of our faith, with implications in marriage, with implications in family, is the gospel of Jesus. I think it's very apt that today we do, we are able to do this. Where Jesus didn't use his power to dominate and crush us, he used his power to serve us. Didn't make it less powerful, in fact, it made it more powerful. He took responsibility for our sin and fought on our behalf. What does that look like in a family? What does that look like in a marriage? And so wherever you are at, let us look at the bread, the broken body of Jesus for us, the blood, which is the sin, making peace on our behalf between us and the Father. We remember we come into an empty cross, a resurrected Savior who is here for us and with us and He's wanting to empower us to live this out by giving us Himself. May I suggest, and I don't think anyone in this room is gonna be excluded from this next part. May I suggest we start with repentance. Just a simple acknowledgement. Okay, Lord, I don't have that down. Nah. And Lord, you know what? That's, I, I, I don't wanna do that. Okay, just tell Him. But then come to the gospel. This is what you have done for me. This is how you have served me. This is how you have empowered me. This is how you love and accept me. And now, Lord, as I recognize your gospel, give me the grace to step into my home this afternoon, my family, my marriage, my context, the greater family, changed, transformed by grace. So I'm gonna pray. And we're gonna sing gently. And, and once you have prayerfully dealt with the Lord, join with us at a time where you feel comfortable. And that is how we will finish our time together. So Father, man, you are our good Father. This is what you want for us, not from us. You have demonstrated fatherhood by sending your Son on our behalf to take responsibility for my Son, to give me grace that I could not and would not earn to cover me by your righteousness because my righteousness is like filthy rags. And you continue to give yourself to me. And thank you, Lord, that we can come to your table and be tangibly reminded of this gospel. Holy Spirit, convict us lovingly. Pray that we don't walk with condemnation in our hearts. We sense the invitation to what you have for us. Holy Spirit, bring us to a point of godly sorrow as we lay ourselves down, experience grace and mercy picking us up and empowering us to live faith. So church, in your own time, would you do this? And uh, we will sing together.
and uh, conclude in that way. God bless you.